Uh, I would invite the rest of you, please, turn with me again to John chapter 6. It's always strange. I don't know how many of you have this, but I have two different Bibles that I use. And uh, I don't know how many of you kind of have a, a photographic recollection of things, but you ever do that where you switch from one Bible to another and the verse isn't in the same place anymore and it messes you up? I, I'm having that. I don't know what that is. We need to come up with a word for it, but I'm having that experience this morning because I have an unusual Bible with me, but that's okay. Same text, John chapter 6, only doing six verses this morning. You would think that would make this short. Uh, you would think that that would make this easy, but it's none of those things. It's dealing with the central concept of the gospel of Christ, and that is the will of the Father. What does God want? Seems a simple question, doesn't it? Every false religion in the world has gathered together to try to address that question. Does God want sacrifice? Does God want good works? Does God want money? Does God want attendance or time? Piety? Good thoughts? What does God want? Thankfully, we have the scriptures. Can you imagine trying to figure out what God wants from afar when he doesn't tell us? That would be enormously difficult. If you have a friendship with somebody who has expectations of you but then never voices them, are you going to let them down or are you going to fulfill those expectations? You're going to let them, you have no idea. It's shooting in the dark for a target that isn't there and you don't even have an arrow. It's going to be very difficult to hit a, a, a mark unless you know what the mark is or you know at least where it is. And so the, the aspect of the gospel that addresses the very depth of the heart of man is to try to address what is it that God wants? What is it that God wants? And many people answer that in a variety of ways, and I want to challenge a lot of those this morning because the scriptural text is not wishy-washy on the issue. What God wants, especially and specifically in the ministry of Jesus Christ, is listed here in this passage, that of those that he is saving, Christ lose not one. You say that seems a specific point. It is the very center of the hope of the gospel. Not that you would maintain faithfulness throughout all your life, but that Christ will save you. You see, as we're covering in our Sunday school class at 9 a.m. every Sunday morning regarding the Holy Spirit, we are addressing the reality that mankind doesn't have the ability to bring life like that. Mankind doesn't have the ability to love God or even to seek after nor to please God. God saves his people. God brings them to life again. And that new life that God wakes them up to immediately believes on Christ. Faith is as natural to the regenerated person as breathing is to every physical being. You do not have to sit there and wake up in the morning and then think, oh wait, <gasps> okay, I'm going to start breathing again. No, 
No, no, no. It comes inconsequentially. It comes subconsciously. It comes now naturally. This is why when we are evangelizing, my friends, I want to encourage you. Your goal is not to save that person. You can't do that. Your goal is to faithfully give the gospel. Let God do what God alone does. I had to learn this in a very difficult way uh, over the course of three years at one point. I had a couple attend uh, a church I was pastoring, uh, decidedly unbelievers. But they came to church every single Sunday while I was preaching through the book of Romans. Do you know what that does to a pastor? You want to clarify the gospel. You want to explain it. You want to make sure they get it. You want to make sure that they must be missing something somewhere. No. They admitted the gospel was true and that they wanted no part of it. But they wanted to attend church every Sunday for year after year after year. That frustrated me and it humbled me significantly because what I started learning, and this wasn't something they hid, they made it well known, What I started learning was that there was nothing that I could do. Nothing that I could say. No amount of clarity that I could make. No amount of emotional appeal. No amount of of scripture. Nothing that I can do could bring salvation to the hearts of people who were there to hear the gospel every Sunday. That was an enormously humbling experience for me. But it taught me something very important about God. Unless God is doing it, in vain will you make your attempts. Unless God is doing it, you will merely frustrate yourself trying to do it on your own. And it taught me something very important about evangelism, and that is that my job is to be faithful no matter the outcome. The same thing when it comes to preaching, the same thing to evangelism, the same thing to all that we do in the Christian life. Most of you who have had meetings with me, or even if you were here last Sunday, you've heard me say this phrase before, success for the Christian is a matter of faithfulness, not a matter of results. When we see Christ here infatuated with the will of the Father, infatuated with his role in the gospel. When we see him addressing the fact that, in fact, he doesn't do anything except for the will of the Father, and he won't do anyone's will, even his own, but he will do the will of the Father, it shows us the nature of the one in whom we trust. And I want you to see it firsthand. Uh, John chapter 6 will be in verses 35 through 40. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God and his word as we read that. John chapter 6, verses 35 to 40. If you remember the setting, the group of people that have been fed at the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 followed him around the Sea of Galilee to the other side, and they were looking to make him king by force so they could get free bread every day. And he comes to them and says, no, that's not how it works. You're not going to get free bread every day. And they're just like, well, if you think you're as good as Moses, he gave us manna to eat in the wilderness Bread from heaven, and he says, no, you don't get it at all. I'm not just giving you bread. I am the bread from heaven. That's where we pick up. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Our Father, we are grateful for this passage. In here are promises aplenty, and here is joy and comfort in times of affliction and in times of unbelief. We pray, Father, that your word continually form our hearts to love your gospel. We pray, Father, that your word continually form our hearts to love your word. That we would be satisfied with the food from heaven that you have sent because we know you are satisfied with that bread from heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ. May we look for nothing else in anyone else and anywhere else. Christ plus nothing equals everything. And we are grateful that that is how it is. We pray, Father, that these things be added to us in your kingdom. That we seek, Father, not just the physical blessings of following you, that, that peace, that settled feeling, even purpose. But, Father, that we are satisfied with following you because you are the Lord of the universe. And you have seen fit to be gracious to us in our time of great need. And to save us from our sins when we didn't even know the depth of the problem that you provided a way of salvation before we pulled a breath, and that you called us by name before you first set light onto this earth. So great is your mercy, and so great is your grace to save even someone like me. We thank you, Father. We pray that in all of these things, We do not become boastful in who we are now, but Father, we say even after we have done all these things, we are still only servants and we have done what is our duty. We pray all this in your Son's name, the Lord Christ. Amen. You may be seated. When we address a passage like this, It's one of those passages that is quick to read if you're reading through the uh, gospel. But if you dig down into it, you realize that it becomes a deep well of unbelievable meaning. What does it mean that the son, upon being born into this world, does not seek his own will or the will of another, but only wants to do the will of the father? Does that mean that Jesus had wrong will? No. No, not at all. In fact, his will was perfectly in sync with the Father. At all points, at all times. There is no variance there on purpose. There's only variance on role. Within the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, he did not do his own will. He did the will of the Father. And he didn't do it in his own power. He did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The whole Trinity was at work in every single thing that Jesus did in his incarnation. From his baptism, as we see the entire triune Godhead present there and accounted for, all the way through to his ascension after his resurrection, even his death on the cross. 
Every aspect of his ministry was carried out by the will of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. Christians, our lives are no different. Whose will do we seek to do? Even if our will is in sync with the Father, whose will should we be seeking to do? Not ours, but God's will. How do we do that? Do we just make our mind up that we're going to pull ourselves up from our bootstraps and do a better job tomorrow? How is that going to work out for us? Not going to work out very well at all, is it? Our lives must be done in submission to the will of the Father. That is why we're in the Scriptures. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, that is how God has brought life to us. It teaches us to be satisfied with the things that God has given to us. And I don't even mean physical things. Because we have, we have blessings aplenty. Look at these chairs, for instance. Look at this building we are in. Do you know how difficult most of the church around the world has it compared to us? We're not talking about learning to be content with a lot of things, though that's part of it. Contentment has nothing to do with circumstances. Contentment has to do with one's faith in Christ. Every single circumstance, whether poor or rich or whether healthy or sick, Contentment has everything to do with trust in God. It has absolutely nothing to do with circumstances other than showing you what you have to learn. Some Christians walk difficult roads. Some walk really easy ones. Some God has willed that they walk harder roads than others. It's not fair. It's not meant to be fair. It's meant to glorify our Father. And when we learn that God has placed us somewhere or has a job for us to do somewhere that we would rather do something else, our response is not, yes, I know that this is the Father's will. Yes, I know that, but I want something else. That's not how it works. Even if we feel that way, I would pray that we would emulate Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here is an alternate plan, but I don't want what I want. I want what the Father wills for me. Not my will, yours be done. The same thing here. Christ says to this group that was looking just literally for barley cakes, he says to them, no, I'm the bread of life. You want to eat something that brings life? Me. And in case he was misunderstood, he, he went to them and, and doubled down in the next passage, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no part of me. None. So deep was the teaching about him being that on which they would pull any life from at all. And he used to say, it is more significant even than the barley loaves that you're craving. You want food that God has not provided. You want bread from heaven? You want manna? Let me tell you, your fathers had manna and they weren't satisfied with that given just a few years. If you eat this bread from heaven, you will never hunger again. It will be enough for you. One meal. He said the same thing to the woman at the well. She was frustrated because she comes there every day pulling water out of the well over and over and over again. I don't want to come out here every day. It's a shameful time of day. It's a hot time of day, a really unfortunate time of day. But my decisions have led me to this. Give me of this water that you say if I drink I will never be thirsty again. He says, I'm the water of life. 
And he says the same thing here again. Not only am I the bread of heaven, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It is not that he is a meal to be taken over and over and over again so that you won't hunger from something else. No, a singular meal. Can you imagine that? Boy, that would be the the full definition of going to Whole Foods. Can you imagine purchasing a lunch that would be the last meal you will ever eat? And not because you die, it's not that kind of thing, but you eat that and you never have to buy any food ever again. How would that help your bank account? I don't know about you, family of six, not cheap to feed. (laughs) If you could just get a single meal where you would eat and never hunger again, how much would that be worth to you? How about water? You'll never thirst again. Your life will continue to be extended and you won't have to exert any energy. It won't be up to you procuring food or water for yourself The water thing doesn't mean as much to us because water flows here like nothing. They're in a desert. Water is extremely important. I remember visiting my grandparents in Arizona and learning that it's actually hard to blink when you start getting thirsty. That's how dry it was there. Not a place I'd recommend anyone living ever if for any other reason than having your grandkids have to fly there to visit you there. It's not that great of a place. When you, when you look at this and realize that they are dealt with every day, they have to procure water from the ground with wells they had to dig, and Christ says, I have water that if you drink, you'll never thirst again. Well, of course everyone wants that. All these people, they wanted bread. He says, look, I've got bread that's far better than what you're thinking. You're thinking you'll make me king so that every day I'll make magical bread for you. He says, I just have bread that if you eat once, you'll never have to hunger again. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that meet all of your needs? I'm just like, give us this bread. That would be amazing. Why not? And he says, it's me. What you want is not high enough. What you want is to satisfy physical hungerings and physical cravings and physical thirst. It's not just those who come to me. He restates it again in the, in the classic parallelism. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So the same statement again. Whoever trusts in me will not seek sustenance anywhere else because they found him to be the source of all life. Imagine it. Imagine that. And yet there are people aplenty who call themselves Christians that look for something more than Christ and more than his word. And what does he say? If you come to me, if you believe in me, you will find sustenance that's better than anything in the world and you won't even have a hunger again for something else. You will only want Christ. You're not going to settle for rules and law and legalism. You won't fall for any of these things. Why? Because I know Christ. And he has made satisfaction in my stead. And what God the Father wants and what God desires is fulfilled on my behalf. What need have I for anything else? I will simply love those he loves. I will simply devote myself to the things that he devotes himself to. 
What does Jesus say to the group? Verse 36. He says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, there is a contrast made to one of the disciples after the resurrection where he says to Thomas, you only see me because, excuse me, you only believe because you have seen me. To this group, he says, you've seen me and you don't even believe. And Christ says to Thomas later on, there will be those who will never see me and yet will believe. And they are blessed to do so. In other words, there's a specific blessing to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, having never seen him. Folks, that's you and me. That's you and me at the very base of who we are. Have you ever seen Christ with your two eyes? Please say no. If you say yes, I want to take you out to lunch and explain a few things. No, you haven't yet. We are waiting for that day. And while we wait for that day, we believe never having seen. And we are blessed to do so. We are blessed to do so. But he says to them, even seeing me, you do not believe. This is not some failure of the ministry of Christ. No, he backs it up in verse 37 and says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Inevitability. All those that the Father gives to the Son to save will come to him. And whoever comes to me, I won't cast out. Look at that. Look at that meeting of wills between the Father and the Son. The Father desires to save this person and causes them to walk in a manner that they run into Christ. And Christ says, I will never cast them out. Those who come to him on God's terms will indeed be saved. Look at the fact of this. Not a single one of them can be lost again. Not a single one of them can be lost even before they become a Christian. Watch this. The Father wills to save them. We learn from Ephesians 1 that that happens before the world was created. And he works history, circumstance, and all situations so that they will come to the Son and that the Son will not lose one of them. And he will never cast them out. This is why I say Christians are those who live their lives inside the promises of God. We do not live inside this idea that we will do better. We will do better, but that's the work of the Spirit. That's a whole other discussion. The aspect of salvation is that this is God's work in our life, not ours. This is Christ's inaction on us. E-N, not I-N. This is Christ working these things towards us. He will not cast us out. Why does he say this? Verse 38 says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's not that Christ is reluctant in saving. No, he says, It is so solid that the one who called you, the one who predestined you, sent me to save you, and there's nothing that can stop me from doing that. Nothing. Not even if they put me to death. In fact, that's exactly what I'm going to do to save my people from their sins. And we just came out of Christmas time. What was the promise of Gabriel to Mary and Joseph? You shall call his name Jesus for what? He's going to try to save as many people from their sins as he possibly can? Nope. There's a definitive inevitability to it. Or put another way, it's going to happen. Call his name, in English, Savior. That's what Jesus means. 
for he will save his people from their sins. Who are his people? All that the Father gives him. The great surprise was that include not just Jews, but also Gentiles. Not just in Jerusalem and Judea, but also Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. Here, 2,000 years later, where no writer of the New Testament gave one thought towards the existence of this continent or, or our people groups or even of the concept of where we're sitting said the uttermost parts of the world will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Father has willed to save people in places we cannot forecast. You don't know the ramifications of faithfulness. It may look in your lifetime that things aren't going well for you. It may look as you access your life that for this year or for these years or for something that is just bad and so let's just make it good no matter what. No, friends, let me encourage you. Focus on the will of the Father and the glory of Christ no matter the effect. Because I promise you this, those who align themselves with the will of the Father Join a glory that far outlasts any other pursuit in this life. Sometimes it's frustrating. In fact, most times it is. But it is always worth it in the end to follow the Lord no matter. It is always worth it to focus on Christ no matter. I have encouraged this since I first set my Bible down on your pulpit that I want to encourage other Christians to see Christ more splendidly and more central in their lives and in this church. And I'm going to continue to do so. Why? Because what else have we found in Christ worth pursuit otherwise? Is there really any other pursuit worthy of such attention? Christ says no, so must we. This is the will of him who sent me, he says in verse 39, that I should lose nothing out of all that he has given me. And then he moves our minds away from this life that obviously ends because there will be a need to raise them up on the last day. Which means there's a necessary thing to happen between God saving you and the last day, and that is your death. And Christ here in the center of the gospel talks about it. Of all that the Father gives me, I will lose none of them, but raise them up on the last day. Tell me, Christian, tell me, what hope does that give you as you face your own grave? It best be all the hope that you can possibly imagine. Because it is not crossing your fingers to be lucky when you go down into the grave. No, it is depending on Christ That he is the only way that this mortal flesh will raise to immortality. And this fallen human will one day be raised incorruptible. It is not because I am worth that. No. It is because Christ has intended to do it. And he has made us worthy. Do not place the work of Christ on your to-do list. You can't save yourself. You can't save yourself. The best behaved person on earth 
has the least chance of finding salvation because those who are well do not seek a physician. Those who think themselves without sickness do not go to the doctor, typically. Jesus taught this exact thing. I came to find those who are lost. I came to those who are sick. And he says to the Pharisees, those who are not sick, supposedly, have no need for a physician. Go your way. Go your way in your supposed health. No. Christ is for those who know that they have no hope of life eternal on their own. No hope of salvation on their own. And will be satisfied with no other bread but that which comes from heaven and leads to life eternal. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. And I want you to notice the great hope of resurrection here at the center of the gospel. It is not just that we have hope to go to heaven after we die. That is a wonderful intermediate hope. The ultimate hope is that Christ will raise us up on the last day. And that the way God has created us to be, physical and spiritual, will encourage and continue for all eternity. It will endure and it will carry on. This is the will of my Father, he says in verse 40, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him. Greek functions in a strange way here. Believes on him would be actually a better translation of that. It means placing your trust onto something. The same way you're doing with these chairs. You guys have never seen these chairs before today, have you? Nope. You went ahead and sat right on them, didn't you? Nope. Did you put some trust in them? Yeah, you, you would put your trust in the people who made them for some reason, even though they had problems delivering them. We put our trust on those things, don't we? And it leads to a natural response. If you're going to tell me you're going to trust a chair, and I go, okay, great, sit in it, and you go, no thanks. Do you actually trust that chair? Most likely not. There's an inevitability that comes with trusting something and relying on something. It's that it almost becomes second nature. You just sit down. None of you went, let me make sure the chair works. None of you did that. I didn't see anyone doing that this morning. There's a trick chair in here, by the way. One of them doesn't work. No, at the center of the gospel is this, this reality that believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is, is the same way in our language to say to depend on him, to rely on him, to trust on him, not just to save you from your sins, because that's not the only problem you have. You have to do what God wills. The way that that is done is to trust on Christ. Outside of Christ, if you don't want Christ, then you have to do what Christ did, which is to be perfect, to follow every law, every decree, every word that God has ever said. How many of you have hope of this? No one. In fact, the book of Galatians says there was no law that was meant to give life. If there was a law that was meant to give life, and I'm just quoting Galatians here, then salvation would indeed be by the law, but salvation is not by the law. You can't do it. Christ did. If you want shorthand for it, the law of God and the commands of God say, do this, do this, do this, and you will live. And it proves to be death to us due to our inability. And the gospel says it is finished. Believe on him who finished it. 
That's the center of the gospel. Because only in that vein will he save those that the Father is giving to him. And only because of his finished work will not a single one of them ever be lost again. I have watched those who are truly saved deceive themselves with various pursuits and find out how long the leash is when it snaps them right back. I've watched this happen over and over again. I've seen it happen in my own life where I go off kilter on something and find a limit where God smashes me gracefully in the face and sets my feet back towards him again. Those are painful moments in our lives, but boy, are they good, and boy, am I grateful for them. Can you imagine how terrible our lives would be if God just saved us and said, okay, now you go do life and try it, see what happens. How quickly would we go back to those sins that easily beset us and easily entangle us? I'd end up in a ball of steel yarn faster than you could imagine trying to untie my way out of it. That's how sin gets to us. On every level, at every place. And so if you find yourself wondering then, still here as a Christian, then what is it that my job is to do? I've already believed on Christ. What is it to do the work of the Father now? Believe on Christ. You say, well, what practically? Practically, believing on Christ lines up perfectly with the law of God. You want to know what God's perspective is on things? Look at the law. If you think that you can go out and murder somebody without any impunity and everything's fine because Christ has died for you, you're going to find a massive hit right up in the face. You're going to find yourself at the end of a road there that's not going to make any sense anymore. God's Christians have done heinous things in history. And I don't just mean organizations. I mean even Christians. But the grace of God is enough to snap us back into reality and say, let us trust in Christ even now, at all points and in all ways. No matter how difficult and how frustrating it might be, no matter how humbling it might be, for us to trust in Christ no matter I mean, honestly, what other pursuit is worth it? Whoever believes on the Son will have eternal life. Whoever believes not on the Son will not. Whoever believes on the Son will have eternal life. And Christ promises right here, and I will raise him up on the last day. He says it twice. He says it twice to them to teach them of this reality. It's not just about this this constant life that is lived through your generations, as the Jewish people at the time were thinking of everlasting life, was this idea that you taught to your kids this, and your influence just continues to live on past them. Their concept of afterlife was undeveloped, especially of resurrection. There really wasn't a significant development of that. Christ gives it to them full bore. Those who believe on me will go to their graves... And I will raise them up on the last day. And there's not a single one of them that I will lose. And not a single one of them that will lose their faith in me. This is not a reality of some kind of concept of 
of fire insurance or something where someone says a magical prayer and then all of a sudden they're safe forever. That doesn't work that way. No, it doesn't say you're saved by prayer. It says you are saved through faith in Christ by the grace of God. And if that truly has happened, that person will persevere unto eternity. Will we have hiccups along the road? Yes, we will. But I think any Christian can share the same experience I have. In times where I desire to go backwards or go my own way, those times are far between, and those times are becoming increasingly less as the years go on, as I find that Christ is satisfying to every level of desire in the Christian life. It is a frustrating thing sometimes to still have sin within our bodies. The way to wrestle against it is the same as all things ever have been. Trust in Christ. He will bring life to our bones and purpose to who we are. The Holy Spirit is given to the church for this exact reason. That we may be able to carry out the impossible work of fellowship of saints. From different cultures and different backgrounds, we still glory in Christ, the singular Savior of all the world. Let us do that. Let us do it with full hearts. Knowing that it is not a matter of how much someone is like another. It is a matter of Christ being enough for us. Christ is satisfying to the Father. I have this one question for everyone in here for application today. Is Christ also enough for you? I pray he is. I pray he is in your evangelism, in your fellowship, in this church, in your reading of the word of God. Is Christ also enough for you? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word, how it morphs, connects, challenges, how it stabs us where we ought to be stabbed, and how it encourages us when we ought to be encouraged. Father, we are deeply grateful for your gospel, for in it the power of God The righteousness of God is revealed. And we see in the gospel not our own righteousness. We see Christ. We pray that he is is pleasing to you as he is satisfying to you. May he be pleasing and satisfying to us as well. We pray this in his name. We pray it for our church, our lives, our homes. We pray, Father, that you give us such perspective every time we open your word that we will see Christ on every page. And that in our hearts, by contrast, we will see what sins still dwell in our hearts and realize that either we are killing sin with the Holy Spirit or it is killing us. There is no middle ground. We pray, Father, the same thing with Christ. Either we trust in him or we trust in ourselves. We pray, Father, for the greater of those two. 
We pray for the generation of Christians that is to come after us, that you may use us in any way to bring them the gospel, that those whom you have called and you will save, you see fit in your grace to use us as part of the mode to reach them. May we preach your gospel without compromise. May we preach your word, Father, to our hearts and our own minds and lives and families first, and then to this world you have placed us in. We pray, Father, above all things, that you find us faithful. We pray the same for our churches nearby. We pray for their faithfulness to your word and the preaching of your gospel. And Father, for those who are not, even as your scriptures say, for all false teachers who would teach another gospel, for those who would spread lies about you, would you crack the teeth out of their mouth and cut their tongues out? These are not trifles. We pray only the gospel be shared. We pray only your word is what we live on, not bread from this world, not another God, not another hope, not idols or any other thing, but Christ and Christ alone, the wisdom of God, the power of God, and the center of all righteousness. We pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen.